to know that at the prayer meeting yesterday morning we debriefed on the royal wedding. As well as praying. In general, the overall consensus was it was excellent. It was very good. Just what we needed. Just what this country needed, really. Well, let's face it, it's done... Commercial, make commercial sense, isn't it, really? I'm not surprised they didn't say, come on now, will he get married? Because we need to make a few pounds for the country. But um, there we are. We did our debriefing session. We did the royal wedding. So it's all over by the shouting. And a few other things as well. But it's all over. Such build-up to that drew the crowds, drew the people, caused people to think, celebrated God's intention of marriage for the human race, which was excellent in that sense. So, what sort of things did you notice? There's a little story about a wedding. A man goes to a friend's wedding and is very impressed with the choice of hymns, especially Love Divine. He is due to be married himself in a few months later, so he makes a note of the number, 343. When he next meets with the minister who is to conduct his wedding, he tells him he would like him 343. Are you sure, asked the minister, it's rather an unusual choice. No, I'm certain. I heard it at my friend's wedding, and it is just what I want to say, insists the man. What he had not realised is that his friend was married in a Methodist church using Methodist hymn book, whereas at his wedding they were using hymns ancient and modern. Imagine the surprise of all, not least the bride, when they started to sing hymns ancient and modern 343, Come, O thou traveller unknown, whom still I hold but cannot see. My company before is gone, and I am left alone with thee. With thee all night I mean to stay and wrestle... (laughs) till the break of day. (laughs) Yes. So what did you notice about the wedding? I will come to my point in a minute. I will come to Matthew chapter 16 in a minute. Fear not, fear not, you of little faith, as Jesus said. I will come to Matthew chapter 16 in a moment. What did you notice? The horse that ran away? Or the one that pooed on the beautiful pink clean road? The verger that did a cartwheel? Elton John singing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. (laughs) The camera shot of what is called the altar in the church as they sung, Let the fiery cloudy pillar lead me on my journey through and I wonder what would have happened if the fiery cloud of God's presence had come. The Archbishop of Canterbury removing his mitre when he prayed. Most unusual. Well, the many singing bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. the various comments of the journalists and how well they have to know history and who the people are and the details. And I love listening to them padding out when they've lost 
the train of what they're trying to say. This is the one that took me. The guests were being transported to the wedding from the royal, from Buckingham Palace. And um, I don't know if you saw it, about four or five silver grey minibuses approaching the abbey. And they were in line going, going down there. And the, uh, the commentator said, now this, this is the people from the royal household the dukes and the duchesses. And then he stopped and he said, might as well have been a football team, he said. <laughs> and it got me thinking, you know. I read Matthew chapter 16 through and it reminded me of a football match and I will explain. Now Kevin's laughing because everybody wants to know what happened to that Chelsea ball. Now you see, the thing is, one team will say it went in, but the other team will say, no, it didn't. It, ah, you see what I mean? <laughs> There's a conflict of opinion here. And so there is, in the chapter we read, a conflict of opinion. But that's not where my point is. In this chapter, we have two goals. We have a foul we have an offside, and we have a match brief. The match brief actually comes at the end. Then Jesus said to his disciples, you sort of see the team gathering around, if any would come on, would come after me. In other words, if there's anybody serious about this game, let him take up his cross and follow me. But it's not what we sort of hear, generally speaking, we all have our cross to bear. That's not the thinking. That's not the point. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Forever who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's a sort of a match brief, isn't it, to the, his disciples? It's also a match brief to you and to me this morning as we consider where we stand before God. And our lives are committed to him. And Jesus still says the same thing. The Christian life, being a Christian, is all about denying ourselves for the sake of Jesus, to follow him. Now, no doubt in a game of football, there are those who are absolutely dedicated to the game dedicated to their team, dedicated to winning, but also that they may be dedicated to the game of football, what it represents. They are pure dedication to that. And when the players have their match brief, they are reminded, you know, this is the match. We need to win. 
we need to score goals. Let's face it, it's only a game, football. I'm sorry, blokes, if you, but it is only just a game with a few boys kicking a ball about. You obviously know that I'm not that interested in football. But in a sense, if you look, take the world view of football, it is a serious thing. It's something which is pursued at very costly decisions. It can make big money or it can lose big money. Players can be bought for a great amount at great cost. Sometimes it doesn't always work out. But you know, the whole thing is when you play football, and there are some that don't play football in the spirit of football, you know, it's just to be, have a name and just to get big money. Not many of them, but there are the one or two that do, and we notice that. There are those that actually deal with the game in a good way and others that bring shame on the game. I mean, David Beckham brought enough renown to the game to have an invite to the royal wedding, didn't he? But there are some who had never been invited. Sometimes it's the same in the church and sometimes in our personal lives. You know, sometimes we play for the real cause of the game. And sometimes we just be in it for the excitement or just because I like the worship or just like the singing or just like the people. But that being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is not like that, is it? It's playing for the game and the glory of it. And when we as believers and Christians come to follow Jesus Christ, we come for the renown of the game and the glory of it. In a sense, Jesus, in the Christian life, Jesus is the one we play for and for his glory. As we worship this morning, we come here this morning because we glory in him and we play for him. So the first tackle starts off in the first few verses. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come and they tackle with Jesus. They tackle all the way forward and the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't normally get together for many things, but here they got together on one specific thing, and they came to Jesus, and because, because we have the renown of being important religious people, we want you to make a special cause for us. We want you to give a miraculous sign from heaven that you, who you are, who you say you are. And we live in that sort of generation because we have a higher knowledge and because we have a higher understanding, we need a special revelation to actually believe in you. Will you give it to us? That is not the spirit of our approach to Jesus. So with first tackle, and we're coming up to the first goal, and Jesus comes in and he tackles the... Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he said, now look, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red in the morning, and in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. This is the first goal, and it goes with all the force and all the power that this world needs. Okay, 
So you're able to interpret the appearance of the sky, and here it is, but you cannot interpret the sign of the time. Every person of every generation in this world today needs to interpret the signs of the times. Do you know why this world is in a mess and what God is saying through it? So in other words, Jesus was appealed here to a philosophy of life that was meaningless. You're able to interpret the, the sky and say what it's going to be like today and what it's like tomorrow. And we saw them on a picture there coming to Jesus. You're able to do that. But you cannot interpret the sign of the times. So my challenge is, my point is, believers, unbelievers, we need to interpret the signs of the times. And nearly every writer in the New Testament challenged the believers who then would tell the world that it's so important to interpret the signs of the time. And that fundamental truth goes straight into the goal. It doesn't linger on the line. It doesn't, it doesn't need um, line technology, I think they called it yesterday. It went straight into the net. Straight to the hearts of the people. And you say, well, we need to interpret the signs of the time. I'm going to read a couple of verses from 1 Timothy 3. But it says, in the last days there will be scoffers, disobedience of children, and sort of things like this which demonstrate that actually we live in an ungodly world. Where is it, Steve? 2, two, two, two. two Timothy two Timothy 5. Maybe I'm reading the wrong one. I think we ought to read it. It's 2 Timothy that's right yeah 2 Timothy 3 if you have a Bible but mark this there will be terrible times in the last days people will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boastful proud abusive disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy without love unforgiving slanderous without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's the signs of the times. The message of Jesus has not changed. There was this great prediction for the weather on the day of the wedding. All the week they were saying, is it going to rain, is it going to rain, is it going to rain, is it going to rain? The last day, just before, 
there's a 30% chance of rain in the morning, there's a 60% chance at midday, and in the afternoon there's another 30% of rain. What a prediction. But the message is the same. Jesus would say, you're able to do all these wonderful things and predictions, but if you cannot interpret the signs of the times, you're far from me. That's the first goal. You cannot interpret the signs of the times. And so for us this morning, let us reflect on what the Bible says. Let us reflect on where it puts us today in this generation of higher knowledge and advancement and in a place where many intelligent people think that through science the world is going to improve. (coughs) And God still says, if you can't interpret the signs of the time, then the philosophy of life is meaningless, which takes me to King Solomon. Because he pursued in his understanding probably known the greatest, the wisest man in the Bible, king in the Bible, and he pursued the knowledge of the philosophy of life. And his outcome was, when he pursued it, he said it was meaningless. That's what Jesus is saying here. If our philosophy of life, the way we predict, the way we think, in our own thinking, and that's the way we believe what we think, unless we're able to interpret the signs of the times, our philosophy of life is meaningless. Meaningless. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, Solomon started by saying, wisdom without the fear of God is meaningless. Wisdom without the fear of God is meaningless. And we've got a lot of wise people. A lot of people say good things. They say sensible things. We have the world is full of counsellors that give good help and good advice and people that are really a benefit to society. But what Solomon was saying, in the end, the outcome of all of it is really, in a sense, if you have wisdom and you don't fear God, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. We could say about the wedding. If they went through all that ritual and had no fear of God, it's actually meaningless. You could have had all the good things about the wedding, but in the end, if there's no fear of God, it's meaningless. If I have no respect for what God says, then it's meaningless. And so Solomon said, wisdom without fear of God is meaningless. Work without corresponding satisfaction in it with a view to pleasing God was meaningless. Solomon said, so good, it's really good for you to do your work and enjoy it. But the point is, there are so many people who do not enjoy their work. I meet them day to day, you know. They're so waiting for Friday to come around. Monday's the worst day of the week. Waiting for Friday to come around. You know, I want to get through it. I want to come to the end of it. I want to get on having a party at the end of the week. And yet God has provided work and employment for people to actually be satisfied in it and to enjoy it. And so it's a challenge to us. Am I happy in what I'm doing? There's not so many people here who've got jobs, but 
If we live in a world where people are not being satisfied in their work, it's meaningless. Meaningless. So the philosophy of life becomes meaningless. We can do all these things in a good world, in a good society, but in the end, if I don't respect God and don't love him, it's meaningless. So Jesus, as these Sadducees came to him, and they came trying to prove who he was, you know, it was a meaningless thing to do. This illegitimate approach to Jesus was a foul. In the game of football, you get fouls, don't you? Things, it's against the rules. It's against the spirit of the thing. It's against all what it's meant to be. It's a foul. And the coming of these Sadducees and Pharisees to Jesus was a foul. I say that. It was a foul, and I will explain why. It was a foul because they thought they were special. They thought the answer had to be given to them because they were Sadducees, because they were the Jewish ruling council. And it's a foul because if we approach God in that way, we approach God in that way, I have a higher knowledge, I have quite a good understanding, I've been trained in university, and I need to God to show me in a special way because of my understanding. It's against the rules. Because in a moment we will see what the difference was with Peter. And I say that because, you know, this is the generation we live in. This is the generation we live in, you know. I want God to be, show me specially, and then I will believe. Because I have this great understanding, I need to get round it. I need to get my head round it, and God will give us the understanding. He will help us to understand, but actually it's by revelation, which is the point where Peter was. And I'm saying this because this is the generation we live in. It's no different, really, from what it was in Jesus' day. You know, I'm special. I need a special revelation. I need a special understanding. I need to be able to understand it. I need to get my head round it. And so Jesus came at them, and he said, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given. So if we're looking for anything which is outside the Bible or outside the simple revelation that Jesus came and gave his life for us, we probably won't find it. But if we're seeking God with all our heart, with all our soul and our mind to know what is his way, what is his answer, he will answer us. It's that having that fear of God as we approach him, not that sense of, I need special revelation. I need special understanding. Each of us comes to the cross and what Jesus did for us on that cross. Great Britain is a typically a wet weather country because of all the kings and queens who reign here. I saw one or two people going to sleep, so I thought, yeah. That is true. But the royal wedding did help us, didn't it, to 
think seriously, think deeply, and to look at where we are. Something that drew a crowd. And then to the football match, that too draws a cow. Verse 13. We have a little interlude between this first tackle and goal and the second one, and we saw it on the, on the DVD, where, um, you know, uh, they're going across the lake and the disciples forgot to take bread. And that's, that's an offside. It's an offside, because, you know, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they got it wrong. And sort of the ball went offside for a minute, you know. They sort of start, started talking about, he's having a go at us because we haven't bought any bread. But one thing Jesus did remind them in between was this. I'm able to provide in every and any situation. God is able to provide for needs. Because he said to them, then they understood that he's not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so in our generation, in our time, as we look at the television, and as we look at alternative comments and theories about things, we do still need to be on guard against the teaching of others. Teaching which is actually outside the Bible. Marriage, for example, let's go back to the royal wedding, which celebrated marriage. But you see, there's other teaching. People will say that marriage isn't for today. You have to try it out first. And you have to... Well, it's really not important. But marriage is about commitment in the eyes of God. And between the three of us elders, we've been looking at divorce and remarriage again and things like which are really important in our day and generation. How important are these things? The importance of commitment within marriage. Teaching which is outside of the Bible. Teaching like the Sadducees and the Pharisees was outside the real spirit and content of what God was doing. And so we still need to beware of what we listen to and how we take it. Does it line up with the Bible? Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes the ball goes offside. But the ball has to be reintroduced into the game. Verse 36, it's called, 13, it's called Peter's Confession of Christ. And so here's the tackle. Jesus comes and he starts talking to his disciples. And he said, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, so they tackle back. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked them, who do you say I am? And we saw Peter stand, and Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. What is it about this question? Why is it so important? Because it's a question that every person, every inhabitant of the earth, actually will have to answer. Because if we don't answer it here in this life, we will be forced to acknowledge it in the day to come. So what is the question? It's one that we need to answer here 
in this life. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And so it has become an important question. It's actually, this event has become very historical because of the problems it threw up and because of history in the church. It's become renowned. But in this world where one is saying one thing and someone is saying another thing, it's important to know what is right. It is important to know who is the most important, who is the true Messiah, who is the one to whom we can reach out and ask for salvation. It's important to answer that question, very important to answer that question. This was the foundation of Christianity. And on that day, the foundation of the Christian church was actually laid when Peter... You see, God doesn't want confessions, he wants confessors. That's the important thing. And when Jesus said to him, upon this rock will I build my church... Yeah, it can be seen in different ways, but let's just have a little look at it. Peter was given the name, Cephas was given the name Peter, or Simon was given the name Peter. And Peter means little rock, one that can be thrown or one that can be held in the hand. And if I think of that in a prophetic sort of way, when Jesus gave him that name, it's a wonderful picture about his life, isn't it? Because Peter was actually thrown like a stone on the day of Pentecost and he stood before the people and he preached Jesus and him crucified. If we think about a stone which is held in the hand and how Jesus held him, Peter, in his hand through his failure and through his difficult time, all that time he was in Jesus' hand. And you know, even in our failures we're in the hand of Jesus. But never at one stage was Peter the big rock. It was actually Peter who he was recognising and his confession and about Jesus. His confession was surely and most certainly about who Jesus was. And it's the question we have to ask. And it's that which God, which Jesus builds on. He is the foundation in that sense. But it's not just Peter himself. It's actually what he says and how he says it. So it's like this. Jesus doesn't have to claim the title. He is the title. So in a sense, Jesus is not asking Peter to give him a title. Peter has now owned that Jesus is the title. He is the son of the living God. He is unique. There's no one beyond him. Many in this world try to claim a title. Good old Prince William was given some more titles, wasn't he? But he was given them because of who he is. Jesus wasn't given titles in that sense. He was the title. He's the owner. He's the God of the world. He's the creator of the universe. So Jesus doesn't have to claim the title he is the title. Jesus doesn't need confessions, but he receives confessors. I think in the history of the church, you know, confessions, it made, a big thing is made about confessions. 
you can say them one after the other, but in actual fact, they don't actually mean anything. I can confess my sins and my things to God, and in actual fact, I can just confess them as confessions. But God is not after confessions, he's after confessors. People who will publicly own that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he's their saviour. And that's borne out in Romans 10 and 9, isn't it? But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. That's not a confession, that's the words of a confessor who is confessing Jesus Christ as Saviour and as Lord. Have you done that? Have all of you done that? Jesus does not have to reinvent his authenticity in the cause of denial or lack of faith. He does not have to reinvent his authenticity in the cause of denial or lack of faith. I just want to read to you uh, some verses from 1 Timothy 6:11, and then we'll close. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. And that charge comes to each of us this morning, doesn't it? It's not about God meet me where I am, but Lord, I come to you where you are. I see you as you are. We sang this morning, we lay our all before you. That means our own personal conception of what we must do our own personal understanding of what things are is I submit to Jesus Christ, the one who gave his, gave his life for me. Jesus does not have to reinvent his authenticity in the cause of denial or lack of faith. He is, where the Bible says he is, and it will happen what God has said will happen. We come to him. And we live in that sort of world, don't we, you know? 
Well, I don't really think that's true. Or, well, I think this, and I, and I think that. And Nicodemus came to Jesus at the night and said, no man can do these things unless God's with him. No man. Unique. Jesus is unique. He's the saviour of the world. And it's those sort of confessors that God is looking for, even this morning. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, we see the great sin in our generation, that we can take the same approach as these Sadducees and Pharisees. But we want to say with the hymn writer, it is done, the great transaction is done. I am my Lord's and he is mine. Because it doesn't depend on my understanding, Lord, it depends so much on what you have done and Jesus being revealed to us as the saviour of the world. Father, we pray for William and Kate in their married life. Father, we pray you will keep this marriage secure and keep it to the very end. Father, may your blessing be upon them both and upon their marriage. And may it do this country good because righteousness exalts a nation. We pray for all those who have rule and authority over us. Even the members of the royal family, we pray for them. Lord, some who we know really trust you. We pray for them very especially. And we do pray, Father, that as this pattern of marriage has been displayed throughout the world, may many more follow behind and commit their marriage to God and commitment. Father, through the days of difficulty, through the days of maybe disloyalty or dishonesty, through the days, Father, of misunderstanding, through the days of resentment, we pray. And we pray for marriages. I pray, Father, for marriages in this church. Father, I pray for every marriage here this morning. Father, we ask for the blood of the covenant that be upon every marriage vow that's been made here, that they will be covenant promises in Jesus' name. Until death, us do part. In Jesus' name.